0: Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, This morning we turn our attention back to the Gospel of John, and this marks a change for us. Uh, We have been spending most of our time over the last several months going through the book of Exodus. And Uh, Many of you know that we as a church, we cycle through different books uh, throughout the year as part of our sermon series. So starting in the winter through Easter, we look annually at one of the four Gospels. And as part of our our season, uh, either around or after Easter, uh, Easter through the summer, we spend about four weeks on a topical sermon series, and usually the one that's connected specifically to our church vision. And then our summer series is often tied to a New Testament epistle. And then we have just now finished and are coming out of our, our uh, fall and winter series, which is through an Old Testament book. And this cycle, this progression, is what allows us to interact with a breadth of Scripture. And we go through these books expositionally, meaning we look at every verse along the way as we go through. And it's what, one of the ways that we... Try to be informed, be, be, keep ourselves informed by the breadth and the depth of God's Word. And so today, we turn to the Gospel of John. And since this is a change in our season, I think it's appropriate for us to spend some time refreshing ourselves about what John is about, what John's Gospel is, and, and how it works. And John is somewhat unique among the four Gospels. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels. And that word means they have one view. Because those three Gospels share common stories and, and potentially, they—they they, actually not potentially, they definitely borrowed from each other and, and had one view. And John's Gospel is, is unique that it has the most unique material. So the stories and information that don't appear in those other three But John's gospel is also perhaps the most poetic of the four gospels, using beautiful imagery, creative wordplay, and other literary and poetic devices in his writing. But a third difference with this book, if you think about it among the four gospels, is that John has a special intimacy with Jesus. At the end of his book, John says he calls himself, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. John refers to him that way, and it's possible that in, in, during Jesus' life in ministry, it's possible that John was his closest earthly friend. And there are scenes in this gospel where John reveals conversations that no other disciples were a part of between him and Jesus. And even the other gospel accounts show Jesus giving particular time and, and closeness to John. And so John's writing portrays this closeness. And I think, I think that intimacy is part of what leads to the beauty of his book. And so, if you were here for our series last year, you probably heard that John has a very clear and stated purpose for his book. Towards the end of his work in chapter 20, John tells us that he has written these things so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is an intimate, poetic book written so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that those who believe, that we who believe might have life in his name. This is a book about Jesus and this is a book about life. So let's turn to this book and turn to our text, and see what John wanted us to believe, and what life he offers us today. Our reading is from chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus, with him, at table. Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear your word, that you would open our eyes to see your love, and that through your spirit, we might have renewed life in your name. Amen. Now, uh, before we dive into the specific content of this passage, in this particular scene, Uh, I think, excuse me, sorry, this microphone sometimes gives me trouble. Uh, We need to note that our passage today comes at an interesting place in John's gospel. And you could call chapter 12 what is, you might call it, a literary seam in his book. And what I mean by that is that John has divided his gospel nearly in half. And there's two major what you might call books of John's gospel. So after a brief poetic introduction... John has given us the book of, what's often called the book of signs, which is the public life in ministry of Jesus. It's where he goes around performing these signs or these miracles, and he's he's connecting them to his purpose and who he is and his identity. And then the second half of the book is often called the book of glory, and it focuses on, on Jesus' last week of his life. And this scene, chapter 12, falls right on the, on the connection point of those two major works. And it presents a thematic shift. For the past 12, 11 chapters, John has been showing us these major miracles. And next week, we see, we'll look at what's commonly known as the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus goes into Jerusalem to begin the last week of his life. And many of you might remember Jesus telling his mother near the beginning of the book of the wedding at Canaan, where he turned water into wine and he tells her that my time has not yet come. Well, this section is where we see that Jesus' time has come. And in fact, the next recorded words after our passage today, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so our passage helps make the bridge from Jesus' ministry of service and signs to his ministry of death, resurrection, and reconciliation. And here at the seam, at the intersection of these two major books, we find what for many of us is probably a bit of a surprising or unusual story. A poor woman pours an incredibly expensive amount of perfume on Jesus' feet. She washes it with her hair while one of Jesus' disciples grumbles about it. And interestingly, this story appears in each of the four Gospels. In Matthew's account, we see that it wasn't just Judas who questioned what Mary was doing. Matthew is a a little more explicit. He writes that Jesus' disciples, plural, in general, were indignant. But John chooses to focus on Judas. And in doing so, in a way, John personalizes this story. John is zooming in on the motivations and the heart of the people in the story. And in Mark's gospel, if you contrast the story of Mark's gospel, when he tells that story, he explicitly states the theological implications of Mary's actions. So in that account, in Mark's account, Jesus says explicitly, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so in some way, that's the point of our story today. Mary's act is an act of anointing. She's anointing the Messiah, the Christ, for his burial. And that's what Jesus is alluding to in verse 7 when he says, She may keep the perfume on the day of my burial. And so our passage shifts attention from Jesus' ministry on earth to his impending, atoning, and sacrificial death. And in one part, that's why we have titled this sermon, Transformation. And it's not a spiritual or a physical transformation, but it's a transformation of purpose. Jesus has changed his focus. For the past three years he was performing signs and miracles and now he is looking to the cross, to his coming death. He is anointed for the purpose that his father has given him, for the purpose for which his father sent him. And here's where we can step back and see some of the particular beauty of John's gospel. Maybe what you might call his unique genius. And we can marvel at how he communicates this message. Because John John doesn't just simply state this truth. He doesn't do what Mark does and, and uses the explicit words of, this is the anointing for my burial. Though that is wonderful and helpful and we are blessed because Mark does that. But in contrast, rather than giving us that propositional truth, John, on the other hand, he narrates this truth for us. He shows us. John zooms in onto the characters of the story. And instead of telling us about the transformation, he shows us their transformation. And specifically, I think he shows us the transformation of the human heart. By contrasting the actions and the values and even the very identities of Mary and of Judas, John reveals how Jesus transforms his children. And this this passage highlights at least three ways that Jesus transforms, or the three ways that Jesus changes us. And so these will be our three points for today. And we see that knowing Jesus changes our values. And knowing Jesus also changes what we do. And knowing Jesus changes who we are. So knowing Jesus changes what we value, it changes what we do, and it changes who we are. So let's look at the first of these. Knowing Jesus changes what we value. In a way, this passage is a conflict of values. That conflict happens to be embodied in Mary and Judas. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus just raised from the dead, performs this outrageous act, taking an absurd amount of expensive perfume and pouring it on Jesus and washing it his feet with her hair. And then on the other side, you see that Judas is immediately opposed, telling Jesus and all those who would hear him, all those around, that this money should have been used instead for the poor. And what you see is you see that Mary and Judas have different values. A few observations to make here. First, is this story is not telling us that Jesus doesn't care about the poor. For one, no person on the planet has done more for the poor than Jesus Christ. I won't go into it in deep, he, deeply here, and I'd love to talk to you about the service afterward if you're interested. But Jesus Christ has inspired more philanthropic effort, more generosity, more societal, changing, uplifting change, lifting people out of poverty than any other single person in history. His charge to his followers to care for the sick and the poor and to love your neighbor as yourself has been followed in countless, innumerable ways for 2,000 years. So this conflict isn't about caring for the poor. Rather, this conflict teaches us how our values reveal our heart. And we'll see later in this gospel that Jesus already knows, or we do see, that Jesus already knows that Judas will betray him. John tells us in retrospect that Judas' motives weren't pure here. Judas wasn't actually concerned for the poor. Rather, Judas probably thought this was a waste, and he certainly would have rather helped himself to the money bag. And so Judas' values, they are on clear display. Judas values himself, and he disguises that value in morally upright language. And I think all of us should take a moment and heed the scriptural warning here. Judas, what he does is he uses a moral good to hide his immoral heart. And I think this is something that we all do. And we might do it more than we realize. We we may not be as quick or we may not sound as treacherous as Judas in this passage, but we are so good at disguising our sins in the language of morality. So i thought of a couple of examples that are true for my life. And and the first that comes to mind is is we sometimes are, are slow to give away our money, to give away our possessions. Whether it's to the poor or to the church, we tell ourselves that it's for things like we need to take care of our family or I should be saving for retirement or because God says we should only give if we give cheerfully. But really when we're doing those things, it could be that we are disguising our own selfishness or our own fear or even our own greed behind what might sound like moral language. Or another one that I've been convicted of lately is that sometimes I find myself resistant to share my time or my meals or to have people into my home because I don't want to be too tired for work or or because, worse yet, I tell myself it's because I need to spend quality time with my family. And don't get me wrong, these things are good. Right? We need to rest for the work that the Lord has given us. And I need to spend quality time with my family. But if I'm using those moral goods as an excuse for sin, to not show the hospitality that God has called me to, I'm revealing that what I really value is I value myself. Or a third example that I'm cautious, cautious to use this morning because so many of us find it close to home and it's sensitive. But I think we do this in response to COVID, in response to all the restrictions that have come out this past year. And for me, I find it easy to hide my selfishness in moral language when I talk about or when I make decisions about COVID. So specifically, I'm quick to point out the damage or the destruction, the hurt that these restrictions can can cause and will cause in our community when at a deeper level, I really just don't like being told what to do. And in the very next moment, or the next conversation, I can find all kinds of moral reasons to submit to authorities. That's what the Bible says, after all. That's what James, that's what Peter, that's what Jesus all say. To obey my authorities. But that also happens to really fit nicely with my own inclination to want to be a rule follower, or to want to see myself as righteous in the eyes of others. In both of these settings, I can easily raise myself to the highest value, putting myself above all and couching it in a convenient language of morality. May the Lord help us, and would God give us the grace to repent when we do that. And we do so by reorienting our values. Because when we look at the righteous person in this passage, and we see the contrast from Judas to Mary we see that Mary's highest value is Jesus. Mary lavished what was most likely her most valuable possession on Jesus, something that the amount of that perfume would have roughly cost a year's wages. And she gave it freely and generously without thought or cost or implication. She did so because knowing Jesus and knowing his love has changed her life. It's likely that this Mary is the same Mary who Luke talks about was a sinner. He specifically says she was a prostitute. Perhaps Mary's values took on new meaning when she met Jesus in her brokenness and her hurt. And perhaps Jesus' ministry to her and his friendship to her restored her own value. And this is certainly an implication of the gospel and what Jesus offers to his children and if you, if, if you are weighed down by sin or by brokenness, see the beauty of Mary's actions. You like Mary, are valuable to the Lord, and his friendship and His love are capable of changing your life. But whether or not this is the same Mary and Luke, that Mary and Luke, John's gospel tells us that Mary's values, her own values, are transformed by Jesus loved. Mary herself is transformed by Jesus love Early on in the story of Lazarus just a chapter back uh, chapter 11 John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and their brother Lazarus And later when Lazarus had died Jesus came and Mary runs out to meet him and she falls at his feet and she begins to weep at the loss at her brother and John tells us that when Jesus saw her weeping he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and greatly troubled. And when he was confronted with her grief, Jesus wept. And in that love, and in that compassion, that is what transformed Mary. And being transformed, knowing the love of Jesus, Mary now shows that he has become her highest value. Knowing Jesus and seeing his love and his compassion has changed Mary's values And it can do the same for us. And because knowing Jesus changes what we value, it also changes what we do, which is our second point this morning. Jesus, knowing Jesus, changes what we do. And we've already been around this topic some, and so I'll I'll make this point brief, but notice how John's focus, or John focuses on the actions of Mary and Lazarus. Mary gives Jesus this expensive gift as an act of devotion, and John contrasts that with Judas, And he tells us that Judas used to help himself to the money bag. Judas doesn't know the Lord in the same way. Judas doesn't value him in the same way as Mary. And it shows in Judas' actions. Mary, on the other hand, is willing to do whatever she can to obey her Lord, totally heedless of the cost. As one writer puts it, both aspects of Mary's actions, the extravagance of her action. And the method of her action, both aspects were disturbing. The extravagance we've already talked about. How amazing it would be to spend a year's wages on perfume and oil and anointing Jesus. But also, the, the method was disturbing. So, you, you may not know, but in these times, Jewish women wouldn't let down their hair. It would be a disgraceful thing. For her to let down her hair. And she lets down her hair and she uses it as a rag to wipe his feet. The very action itself would have been improper. But Mary is no longer concerned about what is proper or expected of her. Because she has experienced the love of Jesus. And she is ready, even eager, to give him everything she has of value. Even if it means potentially humiliating herself and using her hair as a rag. So Mary's actions show us what it looks like to submit and to honor the Lord who loves her. So not only are Mary's values transformed, but knowing Jesus transforms her actions. And that's because knowing Jesus has changed who Mary is. John, through this incredible story, is showing us that knowing Jesus changes who we are. We spent a good bit of time today contrasting Mary and Judas, but the con- and the contrast is stark. Mary is a humble servant, and Judas is a deceitful disciple. Mary values Jesus above all, and Judas values himself and his own intentions. And Mary is a servant of Jesus, and in verse 6, John tells us that Judas was a thief. Their very identities are driving their actions and their values. And so when we think about our identity, who we are at our core, I think it leads us back to one of the main ideas of John's gospel. Because this isn't a story primarily telling us that good Christians aren't thieves. It's not primarily about how you and I should act or how we should arrange our values. This is a story that shows us that Jesus is, changes lives. On the one hand, you have a respectful, perhaps even thoughtful, or what you might call an intentional disciple of Jesus. And he understands the world's values. And yet, he is a thief who will come to kill and destroy. And on the other hand, you have a sinner, a woman who is so humbled that she is willing to break all social customs and seemingly throw away her most valuable possession. You and I are tempted to be like the former of those, but Jesus loves the second. One of these ways leads to death and the other way leads to life. And just so we are not tempted to think that the difference between the two is somehow up to you and me, it's up to us and our action, Jesus John begins and ends this story with Lazarus. Lazarus reminds us How we are to understand our values, our actions, and our very identity and where they all come from. Because John didn't have to tell us that this this all happened at Bethany. He didn't have to make a point of mentioning Lazarus' name several times before this, this event. And he didn't have to include that portion at the end. In fact, no other gospel talks about it in these ways. But what he's doing is John is showing us that Lazarus is a living model of Christ's work, too. So like Mary, Lazarus is an embodiment of Jesus' saving ministry. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He was dead in his tomb, and Jesus brought him to life. And it is the same with Mary. It is the same with you and me. Mary's actions were a result of her identity. She didn't earn Jesus' love. He loved her, and her very life was changed. She became a fragrant aroma to those around her, just like the perfume she poured out on Jesus' feet. And that is the message of the story. Jesus Christ is the one who transforms. Just as he raised Lazarus from the dead, he gave Mary a new identity in his love, and he offers the same to you and me this morning. My hope is that through the story, that we would all see and savior Jesus as Mary did, that we would know that his love, because he loves you, and that the love of Christ would transform all of our values, and it would transform all of our actions and our very identity, and in doing so, that we would believe in him and find life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of all creation and the Father of life. You are the one who sets our very identities and directs our values and leads us in our actions. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would let us see your compassion and your love, that you would transform all that we value, all that we do, and all that we are by the grace and mercy of your love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.